Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Not a dividend. It's a tale of two clones. Now, your losses are on someone else's balance sheet. Generally speaking, airdrops are kind of pointless anyways. Um, I named trading firms who were very involved. Um, Alec.eth is the ultimate possible. DeFi protocols are the antidote to this problem. Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Chopping Block. Every couple of weeks, the four of us get together and give the industry insider's perspective on the crypto topics of the day. So quick intros. First, we've got Tom, the DeFi maven and master of memes. Next up, we've got Robert, the crypto connoisseur and captain of Compound. Then we've got Tarun, Gigabrain, and Grand Poobah at Gauntlet. And finally, we've got myself. I'm Haseeb, the head hype man at Dragonfly. So all four of us are early stage investors in crypto, but I want to caveat that nothing we say here is investment advice, legal advice, or even life advice. Okay, so for those of you who are not tuning in live, we just went live after the end of the New York Times interview with SBF. Um, I think it's uh, actually, I guess, the second interview that he's done, but certainly the most high profile, and it seems like the most hard-hitting. I'm just going to give a very quick summary of some of the stuff he said, because a lot of it has kind of been repeats of you know, things he's already been asserting publicly and in his tweets. So some of, the, some of the key quotes that I pulled out from the conversation he had with Aaron Sorkin. First, he said, FTX US and FTX Japan are fully solvent, and he expects that they can pay back customers. He's surprised that they haven't already, and he's confused why they were pulled into the bankruptcy. He was asked at some length about the shibboleths and the game that Westerners play that he uh, alluded to in the Vox article. And he sort of, he tried to paint it as though this is talking about marketing. Uh, he's like, oh, you know, we do all these like dumb ESG marketing campaigns, blah, 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 in order to get uh, regulatory stuff. Wait, 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 wait. wait. Don't, don't forget that he was like, well, I'm sorry that a private conversation that I thought was the truth was revealed. <laughs> he said that first before. Yes, so like <laughs> true, true. He so Aaron asked him about uh, criminal liability if he expects that he will have criminal liability, and Sam gave a very interesting answer to that. He said, "Look, there's a time and place for me to think about that, but right now is not it. Right now, I need to be focused on customers and what I can do to help make the situation better." Now, Aaron also asked him when did he know that there was a problem at FTX. And Sam answered, he knew that there was a problem starting on November 6th. November 6th was the day that CZ tweeted that they were going to sell their FTT. Uh, it was November 7th, the day afterwards, that Sam actually tweeted that FTX is fine, all assets are fine, we don't trade with customer funds. And so this seems like potentially a an admission that Sam knew that things were not fine when he made that tweet, and that tweet, of course, was later deleted, which indicates probably what we already suspect, which is that he knew that that tweet was... Um, was, was not knowingly correct at that time. He, 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 he repeated again that he uh, regretted that he allowed the bankruptcy process to come into place. And he felt that it was possible to potentially make all customers whole. And when he was asked why, he sort of alluded to doing something like Bitfinex, which presumably means issuing some kind of debt token and using that to quote unquote make customers whole and just continuing to operate. Um, and then lastly, he said, which he also said in another interview, that he has 100K left to his, uh, left in his name. So he you know, presumably doesn't have a whole lot of money left and is just hanging out in the Bahamas. So those are, those are what I kind of perceive to be the highlights. 
reactions. We just we just got off the video. What did you guys think? Oh yeah, I I, I think he meant and, Andrew Ross Sorkin. Oh, I'm sorry, Andrew Ross Sorkin. My my first point is that he said a lot of things and didn't bring the receipts for any of them. You know, he can claim or make any statement he wants. He's done that for a long time, but a lot of things he said, you know, he didn't necessarily provide any evidence for. How much money does he have? Who knows? Most of those entities have been in his name. How much crypto does he have? If you want me to believe that he has no crypto, <laughs> you know, I, I will answer with extreme skepticism. My, my take was, you know, he seemed to be framing his own defense, whether that's a defense in the court of public opinion or the court of the Department of Justice, by framing everything from the beginning to the end as, I'm innocent. I didn't know. Things got away from me. You know, this was just a funny mistake. He, Yeah, so it does seem like he's continuing to assert the defense that basically this was a margin position that went wrong. There was no clear decision or moment that he made to say, okay, we're going to take customer funds and give it to Alameda. You know, he's continuing to assert that this was just kind of run-of-the-mill margining that went wrong and the, the risk systems didn't make this apparent to them. I, I, I think that's just part, partly the interviewer not understanding how a derivatives exchange works to realize how absurd it is to say that that's what happened. Uh, I'd like, I think if Andrew Rostorkin like thought, you know, understood how clearing and settlement at derivatives exchanges is, works normally and like why this makes no, it makes no sense to be like, someone sent you money in your bank account. I'm going to credit you margin in my exchange, like makes no sense at all. There's no settlement guarantee. I, I think like that, that was probably the weakest question in some ways because it, it, he didn't like kind of press on like how, how could that even make sense that you did that at all? Yeah, it's it's somewhat hard, you know, right now for us to piece together everything that's happening because we're getting it, you know, in bits and pieces, looking externally. And but I, I do feel like, you know, once like some of the actual internal communications come out, uh, ideally in like discovery, like there should be a paper trail, like to, to show that this happened, right? I doubt they, you know, had everything done over phone calls or everything done in person. Surely at some point someone put in writing what was what actually happened, and then we'll have sort of a smoking gun. Right now, it feels like, you know, we're trying to sort of figure out how the system worked from the outside just by seeing sort of what, what it's emitting. The fact that they had all these auto-deleting messages in all of their internal conversations, I think, is going to make it very difficult for any kind of criminal investigation to get a smoking gun. Now, I mean, given and also given the quality of the accounting, the accounting was so bad that clearly it's going to be very difficult to actually do any forensics here to understand who was involved when these decisions were made. Um, it seems that, you know, Sam is asserting very clearly that, look, I didn't know. And if I had known, I would have stopped it. And yeah, he's saying that, look, this is my responsibility because I'm the CEO and I messed up. But he's also asserting that he was not, uh, he, he was not knowledgeable. And ultimately, like, that is almost always the key element of a criminal prosecution is the state of mind of the person who's committing the crime. If they didn't know that it was happening, then generally speaking, you're going to get civil liability, not criminal liability. Now, there are certain things I think that are pretty slam dunk like that he made misrepresentations to customers when he said that FTX was fine, that they broke the terms of service in a knowing way, and or that they mis made misrepresentations to investors. It seems now that many investors are raising their hands and saying, look, we were made assertions about the relationship between Alameda and FTX that were not true and that were demonstrably not true. Even, even uh, you know, with, with respect to just the detail that we learned, which is that Alameda had a special status in their liquidation engine, um, there was another interview that Sam did recently with Tiffany Fong, which was actually the very first interview that I guess he's done, 
in that interview, other than Kelsey Piper's, uh, you know, leaked DMs. And in that interview, he was asked directly about the back door that the Wall Street Journal reported on. And Sam's claim was that, no, there's no back door. Like, I can't even code. How would I make a back door? That seemed very confusing to me. Like, wasn't he a quant at Jane Street? How would he I mean, be able to code? He has to code. You, you, you know, I, I remember once, I remember when I interviewed there, when I left college, one of the jokes that one of my interviewers made was, uh, our founders only know two programming languages, VBA or Excel and OCaml and nothing in between. Okay, and so true. like, I could kind of, it, it, there's, there's actually some reasons philosophically for them that I, I could, most of the quants actually don't do a lot more like picking up the phone and pricing things rather than purely like tech-based trades. Yeah, um, I guess but, even if you're writing a lot of OCaml, that doesn't mean you know how to like write but, an accounting but, but, system. This, this doesn't obviate Gary from having done this, right? Like, let's, let's <laughs> be fine. Sam can't code. Sure. Clearly the CTO can code. Right. If he just told one of his close allies within the company to do this in secret, like it doesn't change the fact that he ordered there to be a backdoor. Right. Look, guys. the polycule has one person who could have done it. That's all that matters. Sure. At least, At least one. I, I mean, so, okay. So I, I think we're, it feels like the whole world is kind of on the same page at this point. Uh, other than Bill Ackman. I don't know if you guys saw Bill Ackman live tweeted during the talk that he said, uh, call me crazy, but I think SBF is telling the truth. It seems like everybody except Bill basically thinks that, okay, we kind of roughly know what happened. And I think we, we see the, the defense that, that Sam is trying to make. Honestly, what impressed me the most in this conversation with Sam is the fact that like, there is no upside for him in, in, in doing these interviews. And he's very clearly now at the point where he's like back to his old self. And actually, it was one of the things that the, the, the New York Times had this like live, um, live blogging of you know, different snippets from the conversation. And one of the things they said, which I found very interesting, was like New York Times uh, wrote this themselves, which is that they, they said like something like, you know, Sam is kind of back to his charismatic self and he's using his intelligence to try to, you know, kind of win over the audience uh, and, his, and his vulnerability. And it's very clear, like Sam knows that this, he's very good at this, right? It's kind of what made FTX so successful. And he's basically ignoring the obvious advice of any of his lawyers. And he seemed like potentially seemingly, you know, the stuff that he said in this interview will almost certainly come out in a criminal trial if and when he has one. And so it does seem like, I don't think there's an N-dimensional chess here. Like this is just clearly bad for him to be doing these kinds of interviews and directly answering questions that potentially implicate him on criminal liability. Like, I think he just genuinely believes what he's saying, at least with respect to, you know, this is not the time for me to go in a hole and just disappear. You, you know who agrees with you? Bill Ackman. <laughs> well, Bill, Bill Ackman <laughs> might believe the details of the story. I don't know that I believe the details of the story, but in terms of Sam's just sense that like, look, I just, I, I, I can't just go and do what's in my blind self-interest because I feel like a strong sense of responsibility. Like it's hard to get like, what is his motivation? If like, like if you think it's all Machiavellian with respect to getting on the New York times deal book interview, which is basically, I mean, what happened there was like a cross-examination. This was the most unfriendly interview I have seen. I don't know. What do you, what, what do you guys think about that? I mean, I think leaking some of the specifics, like you know, sort of around the November 6th date seems like a big fuck up, but it does seem like, hey, you know, so far, you know, from all the leaks that have come out, assume Sam said nothing, 
it seems extremely criminal, right? It seems like, hey, there was there was you know malice behind these actions, and so all of his you know interviews so far have been trying to spin this like plausible deniability story, right? Oh, I I fucked up, it was a mistake, accounting issue, and I think that the hope is that you repeat that enough times and people begin to believe that that was actually Sam's state of mind, especially you know, again if we don't actually have those that written evidence. So if that is sort of the message that's being spammed out, you have this voice of the group that's actually pushing that versus you know, everything else that's being leaked out about the back door and, and you know, all these other sort of um, intentional acts that he took. I think it's also possible he just can't help it. That, you know, like the, he's so used to the spotlight and he's so used to being a part of the conversation that maybe he just can't resist continuing to interject himself into that conversation. He got hooked on crypto <laughs> Twitter. Yeah. I know how that feels. I, mean, I know how that feels. It was, it was more fun. His way of like, when asked about the stimulants, he was just like, uh, well, I didn't drink alcohol until after I was 21. It's like, <laughs> what, the, what kind of deflection is that? And then he like started being like, oh, I ha- needed help focusing. But clearly I wasn't focusing enough. <laughs> I was like, my head exploded. When I mean, got to, to be fair, I, uh, I thought that was a legitimate answer, which is like, look, I mean, the guy is like, he was twitch. His leg was twitching. He plays World of Warcraft on calls. Clearly he has a problem with focusing, right? So I can understand that like this guy, for everything we know about him, probably does need some medication for his lack of focus. So I, I thought that was a, I, I honestly thought that was a reasonable answer, but it's still funny. Well, I, I thought that was, that was like that to me, that was the best part, right? He didn't even like, he could have just been like, no next question. right? <laughs> or, yeah, whatever. And instead we like learned about the fact that he was like boring in high school. Weirdly, I got recommended a, um, like a, a talk that he gave in like 2018 on, on YouTube, just like through the algorithm or whatever. And it was, it's, it sort of reminds me of watching like old, Trump videos of like, this, this person was actually a very charismatic, you know, well-spoken person. And then, and, and so it's so hard to sort of square that with sort of this like weird twitchy goblin that we now see on, on screen. But like, you know, at the time, it, yeah, it was, it's a very sort of different version of Sam. So like, I think, you know, maybe what was, was, you know, partly because of this, but yeah, it's strange to see him again on screen. Yeah. I thought, um, I, I, it, it seemed like maybe he'd set that up himself. I mean, I doubt he was getting a lot of help on it. He needed a camera crew. That yes. thing looked like a guilty deposition. That so was like bad. Just, the, just the angles. <laughs> just the, he was looking down and constantly, you know, doing this thing as he was answering questions. And I was like, uh, it, it, it does not, this does not seem like a good way to make yourself seem innocent. So, yeah, especially in the court of public opinion, like the, all these clips are going to be replayed it, over and over and over again. It does look like you're, in a confession booth, the way that was. <laughs> that is a hundred percent. That is a hundred percent the vibe of uh, of watching that that interview. Ah, uh, well, um, okay. I think we should we should kind of zoom out a bit and talk about some of the broader backdrop of what's been happening over the last week. So when when we left things off in the last episode, we were talking about Genesis and some of the fears around the Genesis insolvency. And I believe last week we said that we thought Genesis was probably going to be okay. And now a lot more details have come to light and we've learned a valuable lesson, which I think we, I think I alluded to very briefly last time. I was like, oh, you know, after FTX, I never, I don't feel like I should be that confident about anything. Now we learned why is that it looks like there was a lot of funny business in the accounting at Genesis. Very, very high level. Um, the understanding that we now have from, from different things that have been reported to the press is that, uh, DCG, the parent company of Genesis, uh, made a loan to, Genesis, uh, or sorry, not alone. What they did was they bought out Genesis's bad debt in three arrows. 
So Genesis had, I believe, $2.1 billion of exposure to Three Arrows. And DCG, the parent company of Genesis, bought that debt at par, meaning that we are going to make you whole for that $2.1 billion. And so we're going to pay $2.1 billion for this debt, but we're not going to pay it in cash. We're going to pay it in a promissory note that pays out over 10 years. So basically, they're going to get like some you know, annuity effectively for the next 10 years. Um, but supposedly, there's some term in that promissory note such that if Genesis goes into liquidation, then DCG would be forced to pay the full value of the promissory note. So the, the, the note would come due immediately if there's a liquidation of Genesis, which I assume at the time they weren't thinking was a serious possibility. Um, and that was the reason why you can say we're solvent because, yeah, okay, we don't have the cash, but we have the ability to call all the cash that would otherwise be necessary um, if and when we, we you know, kind of, you know, go, we have to go to the mat on this because of a, a liquidation. So that's now happening. Basically, you're now in a situation where DCG has to do something with this promissory note. Uh, now that Genesis is stuck, we realize, hey, when we were told that Genesis was solvent, we were including this promissory note. DCG does not have $2.1 billion in cash to pay the value of this promissory note. And so either one, Genesis files and then pulls DCG into bankruptcy because DCG will be called on for this $2.1 billion liability, which obviously they're, you know, they're not going to pay $2.1 billion in cash. They don't have that. So either one, both entities go into some super complicated bankruptcy procedure, or the other possibility is that Genesis goes under and then the, the note is itself auctioned off at some value less than par, but somehow it's prevented from DCG going under because maybe the creditors would find that to actually be a worse outcome. I don't exactly understand. I think this is a lot of what people are trying to figure out right now. But TLDR, it looks very, very likely that Genesis, either one, is going to have to file for bankruptcy or two, they're going to have to go through a restructuring such that the creditors of Genesis are going to have to collectively agree that like, hey, let's agree to get some, uh, you know, let's basically reduce our claims at Genesis uh, in order to avoid a bankruptcy, just because the bankruptcy would be so deleterious to the big creditors to, to Genesis. So this is a, a live situation. We don't really know exactly what's happening, but it seems like markets are now pricing in that there's going to be some relatively calm resolution that doesn't involve a bankruptcy, but involves the creditors kind of renegotiating what's happening at, at Genesis. Robert, I know you're closer to this than, than we are. Any further insight, or I don't know if that, like, you're not able to share... I mean, you know, I'm only closer because I think out of the four of us, I'm the only one who's a creditor to Genesis. So it's the embarrassing uh, being closer to the situation. Uh, I have more empathy with everyone who got wrecked uh, with FTX. I'm wrecked with Genesis. You know, I don't have any more information than that. What's been discussed there. Ryan Selkis uh, tweeted out a weird financial model uh, earlier today saying like, TCG is healthy, everybody. Like, take a look at this financial model. You know, full story coming tomorrow. That could be, you know, more optimistic than, you know, reality. But if you're looking for something interesting, go find that tweet. I think the thing that I'm looking for is, you know, whether or not they're pushed into bankruptcy involuntarily. Um, I think at this point, you know, any number of, you know, creditors could push them into bankruptcy. You know, if their obligations are in default, they halted withdrawals. There's a lot of customers that, you know, had uh, positions that matured and that could ask for their funds back um, or whether, you know, they're able to work things out without filing a bankruptcy uh, petition. So, you know, I, I think the odds are high, let's say 80%. But the thing I want to ask about and press you on, Hasib, is you said the markets are indicating, you know, a gentle resolution. I, I'm actually curious, what markets are you referring to? I, 
you know, I what believe, data okay, I could, be, I could be mistaken, but I believe after the news was reported that um, the Genesis creditors were seeking a non-bankruptcy resolution that markets were bounded, if I'm not mistaken, did that not happen? I mean, markets went up. Not today. today this is not today. I, that, this was a few days ago. That's the rate, that's the rate stuff. So. Yeah, that, that, that's like Jerome no, Powell. That, that, yeah, to, uh, that's yeah. today. That's today. But this happened a few days ago. Did it not? Okay, whatever. I, I take all, everything that I just said with a grain of salt. I have no idea what markets think. Although, although I, I, I would be, I would be curious if anyone is actually trading like ECG credit default swaps because like those <laughs> could actually exist. That was what I was. I, I was kind of curious if you knew that that existed. Or yeah, yeah. If anyone listening is trading DCG or Genesis credit default swaps or derivatives somehow, please tweet at yeah. us after the show. Let us know. That's super interesting. I mean, I mean, certainly it's interesting for people who are creditors in case they want <laughs> to, to hedge. Yeah. You know, I've heard of people buying and trading bankruptcy claims. I, there, you know, obviously there's been a huge amount of activity uh, at FTX and people trading bankruptcy claims. Back in the day, there was a huge amount of Mt. Gox bankruptcy claims being traded. I know it was like Fortress, the hedge fund, made a huge business buying Gox bankruptcy claims. Um, I don't know if you can even trade the claims prior to bankruptcy. Maybe you can. Maybe there is already activity in Genesis claims. That would be really interesting. Um, I mean, if you, have data. you can make like a warrant, right? That's like only exercisable when the event happens. And like, if not, then it goes, it's just worthless. Yeah, so, there's, there's, there's a lot of uh, folks who are buying out FTX claims as well. Um, I think Genesis is a bit early for there to be a market for claims, but I guess possible. The FTX claims are crazy, though. Like, I feel like... Yeah, they're like 5 to 10 cents or something. I think they've like gone up. Like, I think they've gone up. Yeah, they were initially closer to well, 5 cents. In the audio interview that Sam did, he said he expects creditors to get about 25% back, which is also where I imagine, you know, a lot of people who are buying these claims to expect these no, to land. No, 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 um, because when you're buying the claims, you're, you're, yeah. you're, first of all, you're taking all the risk away and also you get your money immediately, right? So these claims are going for like maybe uh, what I saw was like 12 cents roughly. Um, that was a few days ago. Right. I'm saying Sam is expecting when this is finally yes. finished that you will get back 25 cents of a dollar, which is what I said. Right, right. Which, which may take many, many years. And obviously there's a lot more risk. And Correct. Yeah. To double your money in like five years betting on an FTX recovery seems <laughs> insane. Like if that's the risk you want, everything in crypto is a better risk. Shout out to Laura. Actually, I forget exactly who it was, but she had someone on recently who bought a lot of Mt. Gox claims. I believe on Unchained, who like walked, walked you, walks you through the entire process of like what it's like to buy a claim, what's like the process. So, like, highly recommend listening to that. I, I forget the guy's name. It's like Thomas something, but it was it was like very in, interesting, instructive. Right. So, okay. So, besides Genesis, which is still an ongoing story, um, the other big thing was uh, that BlockFi finally filed for bankruptcy. Now, this one. I think everybody sort of saw coming. I think there was no question when FTX went under that BlockFi was, you know, a goner. But uh, they, it turned out, we sort of learned a few things from the BlockFi bankruptcy. So for one, we learned that um, among the biggest creditors, so FTX is one of their creditors. We also saw that um, the SEC apparently had a um, $30 million credit uh, to their name as well. Also, the, apparently the reason why BlockFi was taking so long to file, because everyone kind of knew that, okay, BlockFi is toast. I mean, given their exposure to FTX, this is not going to end well. But apparently they were selling all of their crypto, which was about uh, $250 million worth of crypto they converted into dollars uh, before filing. They also are, the, apparently there's like now uh, claims going around about Sam's 
Robinhood stake, which was pledged to BlockFi. I didn't totally uh, fully understand how this relationship works, but there's all these kind of, you know, kind of Spider-Man finger pointing meme going on right now between uh, BlockFi, Alameda, FTX. So it's, it's all, it's all a bit of a shit show. But BlockFi itself has a bunch of funds stuck on FTX. FTX is a creditor of BlockFi. Then there's this Robinhood thing. Um, so I'm all around, I'm, I'm pretty confused about what exactly is going on here. And I don't think we have a clear picture yet of the assets versus liabilities of BlockFi either. So we don't have a good sense of what recovery would look like. What, I think the thing was that like some of the funds borrowed from BlockFi were used to buy the Robinhood shares from Emergent Technologies, which is like this other entity. And then later, I believe that company's shares were used as, as like either part of the bankruptcy purchase and, and pledged effectively. And so there's this very weird thing where like BlockFi's money went to buy Robinhood shares, which came back to BlockFi as collateral. But unlike DeFi, you know, you can't like loop. You don't know what loop, how many times it's been looped. <laughs> it does seem like there's a lot of loops in this whole thing between Alameda and FTX and BlockFi and all this. One of the things that came out also in the interview just now is that Andrew Ross Orkin asked SBF like, okay, so why did you, why did you spend all this money trying to buy BlockFi and Voyager? And you know, we previously speculated on the show that the answer was that he was trying to essentially save his own bank because if you know FTX, sorry, if uh, Alameda uh, allowed BlockFi and Voyager to go under, well, they were two of his largest lenders, and that would have like exploded the whole thing much earlier. That was that was a theory anyway. It turns out a few things have come to light. One, supposedly that it was reported or at least speculated that the purchase price for uh, BlockFi was in FTT. It turns out not to be the case. BlockFi claimed that actually the purchase was in cash. And so they, they had, I guess, minimal FTT exposure or no FTT exposure. But then second, so in the interview, what Sam said is that like, look, by the time that we actually made these purchases, uh, they had already margin called us. Like we had very little loans coming from BlockFi or Voyager. Uh, and so the reason why we were buying them was purely to kind of stem contagion in crypto, which was at the time his stated goal. I don't know what you guys think of this story. And again, it's probably hard to put together the truth just because it was so long ago and it doesn't seem like they're keeping records on any of this stuff. Um, but what's your, what's your perception of that, the, the, the recasting of the purchases you made over the summer? Well, the one that I read, and I don't know how much truth there is to this, and this is for like the sleuths out there, was that you know, with things like BlockFi in particular, you know, by acquiring BlockFi, they moved a number of BlockFi customer assets to FTX after the fact. And it's possible that it was cash positive for the FTX broader organization. And it also moved assets from the U.S. entity into the offshore entity. So, you know, the example of how this worked is the U.S. entity provided a loan to BlockFi with the U.S. entity's dollars. The U.S. entity is the one that's highly regulated and everything is kosher, blah, 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 right? Then BlockFi moved its customer money to FTX International and more money than FTX U.S. put in. And the net impact of this was money positive for the commingled Alameda FTX International organization to help buy them time. That's my understanding, but I could be mistaken. There's one other thing that was funny in this interview, which I thought was hilarious. Was like he was like, yeah, and all the and all the and all the jurisdictions where we were forced to follow the rules, like the U.S. and Japan, like 
people are solvent. <laughs> and he, he basically said that, which was just basically saying, like, if we were forced to follow the rules, we follow the rules, which implies, you know, <laughs> if not forced to follow the rules, then we don't have to do anything. And I guess this idea of like moving all these US assets offshore is in that vein of like trying to avoid any needing to, to kind of uh, deal with the rules. So not to shift gears too much, but one thing that I also feel like is somewhat damning or confusing about the FTX is like opting, like being a lender on FTX is opt-in. Like you can have your funds on the platform, but not have them being lent out. And so the story of like, you know, hey, we had a bunch of bad collateral. We took out you know, some loans, the collateral goes down. That would make sense if like those losses were then socialized amongst the people who were part of you know, the lending margin program on FTX. But like, if you weren't, then your funds should have been separate. So clearly there's like some sort of commingling. Otherwise, like there, this should not have been you know, possible. Yeah, I, I think it's pretty clear that we don't really understand even the nature of Sam's story about how exactly, the, like how exactly he's even claiming mechanically this whole thing would have worked. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think it's very unlikely we're going to get any clear answers unless either one, somebody who's much deeper in the details actually interviews him, um, or two, we basically see this thing dragged in front of a, a trial of some kind. Um, I think, I mean, arguably the bankruptcy trial will have to unearth half of this, these questions more deeply, right? That, that's it's why I actually think it was announced. Why would it? Well, I mean, it still has to do recovery for it. It put all the entities in bankruptcy, including Alameda and like every random entity, except for a few, like a very small number, like Ledger X and stuff that didn't enter. Right. But it's not clear to me that like this is the kind of thing that would happen in a bankruptcy court. I think it's much more likely that they're just going to find the assets, figure out the creditors, and then figure out the, the you know, how to distribute what's left. Right. A bankruptcy court is not there to like, you know, figure out who did something wrong. Right. It's not forensics necessarily. It's tracking yeah. down all the money, getting it back, getting yeah. it to the people who deserve yeah. it. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know that we're going to learn anything much from the bankruptcy court other than just like what, uh, <laughs> like what the money was spent on. I think that we'll learn. And there will probably be a lot of stuff of people going after Sam personally, going after some of these entities that were separated, going after some of the real estate. So there'll be a lot of that that I think will come out uh, through the bankruptcy proceedings. But I doubt we're going to get, again, any answers about what really happened. It's just such a complicated question, and a bankruptcy judge isn't really even equipped to investigate that question. So, yeah, although I, in this case, I feel like one of the reasons I'm a little more convinced some of these details come out is because where and how the assets are stored and custodied right now is still extremely unclear based on some of the statements made by the current, the, like John Ray, of like, we don't actually know how to like get keys for certain things or like, you know. Some, some of the custody state is weird. And so I think that will force you to do some forensics in, in the process, if that makes sense. Yeah, that, that, is, that is possible. That is possible. The, another thing, so after a lot of the FTX fallout, there was also this Binance recovery fund. And there's a lot of weirdness around this recovery fund. So I don't know how many of you guys have been paying attention to this. So CZ announced that, hey, Binance is going to step up and we're going to you know, dedicate a bunch, of, a bunch of money to backstop the industry. It looks like there were some contributors. Um, we uh, like Jump contributed, Polygon contributed, GSR contributed, um, but it looks like there's only 50 million that was total contributed by outsiders, as far as we can tell. And then Binance claimed that they were dedicating one billion in BUSD to this sort of bailout fund. Tom, you you were going into some detail in the story. 
what what are we seeing with this Binance Recovery Fund thing? Well, I think people just are a bit confused because you know it's it, basically uh, the address that Binance listed as like the recovery fund is like a single address that was moved from a Binance hot wallet. His address um, was moved from like Binance Seven, so it's like like why is the entire you know recovery fund being stored in like a single wallet and like why was it moved from like a Binance wallet? It, it's just very confusing right now, and especially given that CZ also sounds like he's trying to go out and raise more money for this. So yeah, there just isn't really like a really very clear story around this. I think is it Huobi or OK is also trying to start their own recovery fund. So I guess now everyone has a recovery fund uh, as well. Yeah. So we have these recovery funds now, but like, what are they bailing out? Things are exploding and they are just kind of sitting and watching. I don't understand what this is for. They're shibboleth for society to take you seriously. <laughs> <laughs> Sam was right all along, you guys. It turns out uh, he was more, he was, he was telling the truth when nobody else would admit it. Well, I think Binance is, and this is my hunch, Binance is going to bail out all the programs from like, Binance launch, Binance Launchpad and their incubator and all these like you know low to mid tier projects that have run out of money or lost all their funds on FTX or whatever. Anything that they've like backed in the past, you know, they can probably like bail out those teams with a couple million dollars to get them to keep building in the Binance yeah, ecosystem. I, I, I saw a bunch of posts like this that were like developer on Solana moved to BSC or moved to BNB Chain. Sorry, BNB Chain. And I, I like I think there's like there's something about like Binance is using this as an opportunity to like grow the BNB chain ecosystem. I mean, not that this ecosystem fund, it's an ecosystem, it's really an fund. ecosystem fund. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it was interesting. I mean, not that this is the metric you should always look at because it's quite gameable, but it was interesting that pancake swap flipped Uniswap TVL this weekend, uh, not coincidental with the, <laughs> the arrival of this fund. So there's something weird about the, there's something going on in BNB chain land. I, that mean, is, I think this is meaningless. But TVL, TVL exactly. is not relevant. Yeah, yeah I, know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. No, no, no. I, and this is comparing V2s. Uh, I'm, I just, I, I'm just, I, I will just V2s. Who cares about V2? Because it's all moving to V3, where it's more. But all the really, right. all the really low liquidity random coins are in V2. D- does PancakeSwap have a V3 equivalent? No, not yet. But the V3 license expires when, like April. So I feel like we're gonna. Everyone's just gonna deploy. It. Like right now, there's a thing where everyone who wants to deploy V3 has to go to Uniswap governance. Get governance to approve like right. deploying on your chain, and obviously, you, you know, I'd say Uniswap governance is very anti BNB chain, so I don't <laughs> see that ever happening. But that's why Uniswap governance will extend the license for another year. Oh, can they choose to do that? Yeah, oh, yes, yeah, there's, there's a, <laughs> the actual terms of the business source license are governance can grant additions and licensees to it. Or it can change the date of so if Okay, so just so I understand, because uh, I'm not super close to this. So if uh, somebody goes and deploys Uni V3 on BNB chain, what happens? Like, who sues who? How does this work? I mean, I don't know if we're actually going to find this out, but I assume Uniswap, the protocol votes to hire <laughs> a law firm to sue some project. Okay. Or, I have no idea. I have no idea. How I think it's actually supposed to be litigated in Claros Court. Uh, if I'm familiar <laughs> with the Uniswap license, you guys can correct me on that. Claros. <laughs> Wait, do you remember what was that trial that happened of like that guy Yaz? Like there was this like fake trial trying to like censor him, and it was like kind of a kangaroo court in Claros. I, I forget if it was Claros or somewhere. Uh, no, it was Aragon. Aragon is where we saw like some crazy uh, 
Yeah, yeah, Aragon was nuts. Aragon was nuts. Aragon was like a kangaroo court. It was like somehow we found a way to build all the technology to reinvent Soviet Russia in the 1920s. Wonderful, wonderful. Okay, well, speaking of um, speaking of chaos and DeFi, so we did have also last week a very interesting attack that took place against Ave, and this is this kind of caused reverberations across uh, all the lending protocols in DeFi. So. Tarun and Robert, I assume you guys are, are closest to this, but I'll give the very, very high level. So we talked before about the Mango Markets attacker, Avi Eisenberg. Uh, Abraham Eisenberg is his full name. Um, so he was the one who manipulated Mango Markets and to have a very profitable trading strategy, quote-unquote. He announced earlier this idea that he could basically do an attack against Ave by borrowing assets that were essentially that, that were... Uh, less liquid than Ave was kind of giving them credit for, uh, and essentially manipulating markets after doing large loans. So I think essentially the way the attack worked, actually, Tarun, it's probably better if you walk through it. Describe for us what exactly happened with the attack, what happened with Curve, and the you know the, the, all the the kind of play by play. Why Ave ended up incurring bad debt at the end of this episode? Well, I mean, the bad debt that the protocol had is the the thing that you're, you should be worried about at the end, not not the the ones he made but I, he was sort of doing the a little bit of the opposite of uh what happened in mango where instead of trying to push the price up of some piece of collateral to borrow everything he actually put some usdc's collateral then shorted curve try to push the price down and then basically by pushing it down his, he basically could borrow all of the supply of curve and then if it mean reverted then he then you have then you can do a mango style thing now he didn't really analyze where curve liquidity was. There was kind of not, there are not many places to get curve. For instance, convex finance is a place where people end up locking up curve for multiple years and there's quite a bit of liquidity in there. And so it was easy for people to take the other side of his trade and basically grief him for shorting this in the way he did. Um, the protocol, Called realized bad debt because basically there wasn't enough curve to do the liquidations. And so it was just expensive in some way, sense. But the total amount of bad debt was like under $2 million. So it was relatively small. Yeah. So I, I think at the end of the day, like the, the sheer destruction and overall liquidity since the FTX incident has made these mango sell things more likely, which is why I think people are being much more cautious now. But the, the main point is in the V3s of both Compound and Ave, there are borrow and supply caps, which you can use to kind of limit the max size of these types of... So if I, can, if I can summarize in a sentence, there were some stale parameters for borrowing and lending long-tail, or mostly borrowing long-tail assets. And these parameters assumed market conditions that looked more like you know, January than that looked like today. And all the stuff, ironically, that we've been talking about with credit destruction. For Mango, it's actually quite different. Uh, versus Mango is different, yes. Uh, it, in Mango, it was sort of the long tail parameters. Here, it was sort of, there's this weird thing where like the the collateral used was actually like good collateral and the liquidation threshold was somewhat high. And, and it's actually very hard to convince people to lower liquidation thresholds in these communities on the major assets, meaning ETH, WBTC, USDC, Tether. So, so Avi put up USDC and then shorted curve. So it, it, it's a little bit more nuanced uh, if you actually go and, and look in the details. But yes, it, it's one of these things where like liquidity conditions deteriorated, going through governance took 
you know, by the time, by the time we got the proposal would make it through, it took, it was late. And so, you know, yeah, we submitted a proposal and froze stuff, but I, I guess the point is, uh, I think, yeah, it was sort of unprecedented, but there was, it wasn't like a huge loss. Also maker had some bad debt as well last week from Gemini Earn. So if you remember, uh, maker put part of the safety module into Gemini Earn to earn some yield and it incurred some losses from that mm. and has written them on and paid back. How, how much did it put into Gemini Earn? And isn't Gemini Earn Genesis? Yeah. So they wrote off, they wrote it off completely and just paying it in die back to the it, it was about oh, wow. two million dollars. It was almost the same. It was about oh, that's it? Oh, wow. two million yeah. dollars. Yeah. They were just starting this program. It was like dripping into Genesis. Well, that's great that they so were. They got lucky. Yeah, that's great that they. I mean, it's not luck, right? Yeah. Like they did the slow rollout. That's great. Good for them. Well, it's not just a slow. I mean, I mean, there there is some luck in that. The timing of when this happened right. could have been you know, totally different. Right? Of course. So, of like, course. like I, I, there's, there's still still. But my point is, both protocols had these kind of events. They were relatively small. Communities rep- responded pretty quickly. So I would I would just like say that, you know, and, and you can see how the debt is and people are all fighting about it versus like, I don't know, how how did Genesis get like billions of dollars of debt and like not, you know, like not liquidate anyone? It's, it's kind of my good question, because the humans didn't want to liquidate their best customers. I mean, I think yeah. for I mean, oh, yes, that is definitely true. I think for. Genesis and for for Gemini Earn specifically, my understanding is like that's actually a large bulk of sort of the debt. It's like almost a billion dollars is coming from Gemini Earn, and I think there's inherently this weird issue, which I don't know why was this, these programs were set up this way, where you just have inherent like duration mismatches, right? Where you sell these sort of yield services to retail customers with the idea that you can always deposit, you can always withdraw like a bank, but then on the backside, you're making, you know, fixed term loans to, to market makers. And so even if the loans are, are, are fine, like you're setting yourself up for a bank run because inherently like, there's just no way to sort of, you know, and, and these aren't very liquid assets. It's not, it's not like you can go to the Fed and like borrow against them or sell them easily. It's like, these are sort of weird bespoke lending agreements. And so it's almost as if like, you know, you raise a few million dollars and you like, you know, told all the Gemini earned depositors to like, go on vacation for six months, you know, when these loans are supposed to expire and, to get their loans back, like that is almost like an easier solution rather than like trying to get everyone immediate liquidity for a product that just isn't designed to have immediate liquidity. Yeah, I mean, that's true. But I mean, what you're describing is banking and like that's what Genesis is. Genesis is a bank. Right. I guess my question is like, why did Gemini not sort of bake that into the SLAs? The the idea that like in you know certain market conditions, it's not guaranteed you're going to be able to withdraw one to one or put some limitations on that or, or something. I guess better. Around, I mean, you're right that I guess this is just banking, but it's weird to me that that was them not more presented more more clearly up front. Yeah, Good I mean, point, look, Gemini um, is one of the biggest creditors, and I think that's who Genesis is negotiating with right now. Um, because if Gemini pushes them into bankruptcy, then it's all going to be a gigantic mess. And I think it's pretty clear that's not good for Gemini or for Gemini customers. But yeah, I, I think the answer, unfortunately, is that that's what banking is. And banking is basically the business of duration mismatch and trying to manage that duration mismatch so that it doesn't explode in your face. And that's why eventually we invented central banks is because managing those duration mismatches in times of, of, real, of real trial generally requires a bigger, stronger bank to come and save you. And you know, if you recall, that's what we thought CZ was doing. 
when we thought it was still a duration mismatch thing. Now we know it's not a duration mismatch thing, but that was presumably what the story was about how Binance was going to save FTX. That was basically a pseudo central bank stepping in to help a weaker bank. Yeah. I mean, in all of these cases, you know, you have entities in the case of FTX, it was essentially running out and making venture investments, you know, and buying up all these things with FTX customer money in Genesis's case, it's having like, you know, longer term assets, longer term loans against really short term Gemini earn customer money that wants to withdraw every time bad things happen. In all these cases, it's, you know, investing for the long term with liabilities that can be demanded on a moment's notice. Yeah, it's it's true. And I think, look, I, I agree with you, Robert, that, you know, DeFi shows us a much better way to resolve these problems. It's, it's much better to have everything out in the open, have smart people thinking about this and not just a management team that's pushed into a corner and has to make up stuff to defend itself. We've seen the same behavior basically from FTX as from Genesis, which is that they just say whatever they need to to keep deposits on platform. And if the deposits leave, then all of a sudden everybody is, uh, you know, just goes quiet. So a- as a result of this attack, which to be clear, we're actually not sure whether uh, a- Avi made money from this attack, uh, because you know, presumably he was shorting it on a centralized exchange, and so we don't we don't know how the positions ended out. We do know the open interest, and it was not very high on any. Yeah, of the- I was going to say there was only like seventy mil in like open interest on Curve Perp. So like, I think he just like evaporated forty mil, unless he had maybe some you know long exposure. But I, I don't know if there's like a gigabrain move for the for the curve short. I see. So we, we think most likely yeah. he lost money. Also, do, do you think someone like that wouldn't be bragging about it if they even broke even? That's fair. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I think specifically he was like building up this short because he was trying to reach. Um, so Michael, the Curve founder, has like I think a, a few hundred mil in Curve as collateral, and so trying to hit his liquidation threshold, which was like twenty five cents, in the hope that that would cause it to sort of you know massive dump, and unfortunately got got discovered and and uh, squeezed. Right. Yeah. And then Curve released their their white paper for their stablecoin in the middle of this yes. thing, which was well, another <laughs> emergency pocket white paper. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a great a great move to have in your utility belt when you need it. I, I, I will say my my one criticism. I mean, I th- th- there's maybe some benefits and merits to what's in that paper, which but it's very underspecified. But I will say the one one my one criticism is I don't think any DeFi mechanism needs to use the word adiabatic. That has nothing to do with crypto, and that paper has it six times. So. <laughs> Sing it, Tarun. Yeah. So, okay. So, the consequence of this was that obviously there was some bad debt on Ave. Ave is going to pay that back. So, I think Ave is going to be fine. It's a relatively small amount of debt for Ave as well as for Maker. And then Ave paused lending markets for 17 of their tokens. Uh, Compound then went and did the same thing, which is, I think, a different set of like 10 tokens. Borrow cap. No, no, no. Oh, bar- cap. The problem is Ave V2 doesn't have. Ah. Uh, Caps. You can't, you can't, there's no like debt ceiling limit. I see. I see. Ave V3 does. Got it. Okay. So until Ave V3 arrives, for now, Ave has paused the lending markets for these, uh, for these tokens. Um, Compound instituted these borrow caps, and, and I think Ave will do the same once they migrate to V3. I, I think this is a good place to end on because I know, uh, Tarun, you've got to stop here. But it really speaks to the difference again, which we've talked about again and again over the last three weeks between DeFi and CeFi. In any time where you have a lot of market instability and you have, you know, credit kind of collapsing and a lot of fear in the markets, bad things happen. But you can just see how stark the difference is between what happened in DeFi and what happened in in centralized players, right? Genesis, 
likely going to bankruptcy. BlockFi imploded. Every single lender in the space has basically died. And then, of course, FTX has gone under in absolute disgrace. When Aave and Compound were facing the same pressure, what did they do except everybody shows up, puts together their collective brain power, sees exactly what's happening with the exposures, and pulls things down. Uh, and on the whole, despite the fact there was a coordinated attack, that's not even what was happening at FTX. At FTX, they did it to themselves. But in this case, this was, a, this was an attacker trying to bring down the platform, and the thing performed beautifully. It, it took on only you know, a million and a half of bad debt, which was like less than 1% of the debt in the protocol. I think like less than half a percent of the debt in the protocol. Yeah, to put it into context, the, the bad to revenue ratio is still less than uh, when I was like looking at the, the Fed numbers relative to that. Uh, I think it ends up being like 3 or 4% and the average bad debt to leverage ratio for secured lending below credit grade in the US is like 15%. So it's still quite a bit lower in terms of things like that. So yeah. Before we end, I actually want to ask a question to each of you, okay. which is, what is your prediction for the Telegram decks? Telegram Ooh. announced today that they were going to like, they're going to have NFTs in the decks. And it were, this feels 2018, right? Again. Yeah, this is all the way back to <laughs> the origin. Of it. Isn't this what they were told they weren't allowed to do? Yeah, that's why I'm like, I'm like, whoa. Well, they okay, weren't I guess allowed they to do care. the ICO, right? It was a securities issuance violation. And um, so they said, okay, we're not doing Telegram Open Network and then some random people supposedly grabbed the source code and decided they were going to spin it up. And then Telegram, or you know, at least uh, uh, Durov, looked at this and was like, oh, this is so cool. It's actually working. We are going to start supporting this blockchain within Telegram, despite the fact that they had to re- give the money back to investors that they originally raised, which was a massive amount of, amount of money. So, okay, my prediction for the... Uh, honestly, I haven't been following it super closely. I saw the announcement today. It seems like... Ton token has a huge market cap. I think it's valued like two billion uh, circulating and five billion FTV, but very low liquidity. There's very little of this thing trading on any venue, and I think it's like the biggest exchange it's on is OKX, uh, and it's tra- it trades like a couple million a day on OKX. So I I, I don't know. I have a, I have a hard time squaring this, but I'm I'm not personally a believer well, in like the messenger they're building, coin. They're building, a deck. they're building a dex in the messenger, which to me basically is. All those Telegram OTC groups that people are trying to sell you coins in, Telegram is trying to compete with them. <laughs> Bad timing, but yeah, fair I, enough. I, a friend of mine sent me a ton token recently because I didn't really sort of believe this like wild story. But then I learned that because I have a US phone number, uh, I'm actually not allowed to have a Telegram wallet. So you know, if you hated you know, region-gated exchanges and region-gated DEXs and region-gated relayers, you're going to love the region-gated blockchain. Um, uh, or region gated messenger, I guess. Yeah, region locked messenger. Yeah. Robert, what's your prediction? I can't speculate on this. All right, Tarun, what do you think? Uh, you know, I, like I said, I think their 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 goal is to like re- kill the OTC chats that are in Telegram. Fair enough. Well, we'll have to see what happens. Um, I think this is probably so. Just as a quick uh, caveat uh, before we before we wrap up the show. Normally, the show is done every two weeks. Um, we've been doing this weekly basically since uh, FTX exploded just because the velocity of news has been so crazy. Um, it seems like now things are finally stabilizing. Obviously, there's there's still after effects and contagion that we've yet to see from FTX, but I think the velocity of news is slowing down. So we're probably going to be going back to doing the show every two weeks. But thank you, everybody, for tuning in. It's been amazing to see how excited you guys are to uh, hear from us and, and get our, our views on what's going on in the space. Hoping that things calm down a bit. Thank you, everybody. And uh, you'll hear from us again soon.